Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series on generosity. If you would like more information, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. How many of you guys have seen the sequel to Top Gun this summer? COVID. Oh, Linda, hey, nice job. I like it. This, it was a great movie, right? Um, 1986 was the year that the first Top Gun came out. Since that time, they've been working on the sequel. <laughs> Not really. I was five years old when the first Top Gun came out. Me and Tom Cruise have aged appropriately. Um, <laughs> really great movie. As the blockbuster just hit, it's, it's made tons of millions of hundreds of whatever out there. And it's, I, I really liked it because it was there was just a lot of really good values in there. It talked about reconciliation, talked about relationships, redeeming the past, even talked about forgiveness in a really good way. But the one thing that I did learn as they, as they shot Top Gun and as the news presses came out about it is that if you're going to drive the highway or fly the highway to the danger zone, you are going to pay the piper. It's going to be cost effective. Tom Cruise is known for doing a lot of his own stunts, his own things as he gets on stage and in front of the camera. Uh, he's, he's one of those guys that's kind of just not the norm in Hollywood from what I understand. And so he's not getting into a flight simulator. He's not going in front of a bunch of screens. They're not just fabricating this kind of stuff. He's actually going into these F-A-18 fighter jet Navy jets that are going really, really fast, and they're taking their footage through that. And apparently the Pentagon is, is kind of concerned about a lot of those things, and so they don't want just anybody at the control of military-owned assets, I think is how the policy is written. And if you want to fly in an FA-18, be a part of that journey without your hands on the controls, the U.S. Navy will charge you about $11,000 per hour. Anybody pilot out here? Take your pilot's license, lessons. Probably wasn't $11,000 an hour, but it was still very expensive. Yeah, I'm, I'm certain of it. Um, if Tom Cruise wanted real footage with real fighter planes, it was going to cost. This is our last series in a sermon on generosity. I've called this generosity the gospel cure for possession obsession. We've talked about three things so far as we've gone through the series. We've talked about giving redemptively, giving passionately. Last week, we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, talked about giving joyfully. And as we finish this up, I just want to go backwards to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and talk about giving sacrificially. Today, we're going to see probably the best passage in the New Testament that's related to the topic of giving sacrificially as it applies to the life ministry and death of Jesus Christ. More than anything, this is the passage you would go to to say, giving is sacrificial. Giving costs something. Everything I really want to say in this sermon is, has been given in a quote by Randy Alcorn, his great book, Treasure Principle. I've, I've referred to it often through the series. I want to share this one. He says, we are most like God when we are giving. Gaze upon Christ long enough and you'll become more of a giver. Give long enough, and you'll become more like Christ. All right. I want to read this passage in its entirety. We're going to go 2 Corinthians 8, look down at your Bibles at verse 1. 
I'm going to read all the way through verse 15. We won't cover all those verses, but just give you a, a full picture of the, of the context here. 2 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. You might make a, a special reference to all the occurrences of grace in this passage. The grace of God has been given to all the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Your, your scripture there might say act of kindness. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. Verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also had a desire to do it, and so now finished doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it might be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Verse 12, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that is a matter of fairness. Your abundance at the present time should should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, and there might be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. It's interesting where we find 2 Corinthians 8 in the flow of this book. It's it's hard to do these sermon series and just jump into a passage without looking at the overall context of a book. But, But 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 really stands out in the book. It almost... People have read it before, and they suggested that these were chapters that were later inserted by a different author than Paul. Everything about the context and the content of 2 Corinthians was, really wasn't about giving at all or any specific matters that pertain to churches and, and donations and generosity. All of a sudden, you get to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and there's this passage that almost comes out of, out of nowhere. The book itself is, is much more about um, Paul's personal authority as an apostle. This is, 2 Corinthians is probably Paul's most personal letter, arguably, that he has written in the entire New Testament. It's very intimate, it's very deep. And it's a follow-up to the very painful message that he gave to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians. You guys know that one. They were, 1 Corinthians, they were doing a whole lot of things that they needed a spiritual counsel and advice on, and so Paul addressed those things one by one. The primary purpose of 2 Corinthians was to defend his apostleship and reconcile relationships in the Corinthian church. False teachers had come along. It's interesting, Paul calls these false teachers super apostles. They were all about themselves, tall, tan, and terrific, with a great message that sounded good and tickled the ears of their listeners. 
Paul came along and said, the super apostle gospel is not the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I want to warn you about their content and direct you back to the authoritative message that he originally brought through Christ. Almost right in the middle of this letter, Paul gives this, this plea for giving. He talks about generosity, and he's collecting funds for what I would call a Judea project or a Jerusalem project. The church in Jerusalem and Judea was suffering severe, severe affliction. There was a drought. They needed resources. They needed the help of the saints to bring them through it. These chapters seem oddly out of place, but I want you to know, note a couple things as we get into it. First, Paul was a caring pastor. He was also a pioneer missionary. And Paul was a visionary. Paul knew how important planning and administration was to the success of any local body in any local church. He addresses these things out of a concern, out of care for a long-term vision for a church to be good stewards of the resources that have been given to them by God. As important as it is to give for every local church, it is just as important to steward those gifts and those donations responsibly. And so, yes, let's be a church that's a giving church, but let's also be church leaders who steward God's finances the best we can to our best ability for the health and growth of the body of Christ. Second, Paul is not like the false teacher super apostles, self-centered and self-conceited. He is a true apostle who is Christ-centered. Paul asked the Corinthians to, to give to something that's bigger than them. He asked them to support something that's beyond their walls for the sake of, the, of a bigger picture of the body of Christ working together. And in doing so, to pattern themselves after the generosity of Christ that we see in the gospel. So number one in your outlines, number one this morning, as we look down at 2 Corinthians 8, is to excel in kindness. As Paul talks about giving and generosity in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the first thing he mentions, he asks us to do as followers of Christ, is to excel in kindness or excel in grace. As you read this passage, you can't help but note a connection between giving and grace. The grace of God and the giving of his believers. There's a reference to grace right away in verse 1. Look down at your text. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given. God gives out grace. We give out resources as a response to that grace. We give of ourselves as a response. This passage also talks about acts of grace, both in verse 6 and verse 7. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you will see 10 specific references this word grace, each time almost with a, a slightly different nuance in how Paul is using it. It's important to note, before we get too far in this text, what grace doesn't do. Grace in the body of Christ, grace experienced by believers, does not lighten your afflictions. Grace does not eliminate suffering out of your life. Grace does not even remove po poverty. Grace is much different than your circumstances. It's deeper. It's beyond those things. But Paul says that there's many things that grace does. Uh, there's a direct relationship between grace and giving. Giving is the clear evidence that God's grace is working through the hearts of believers. 
Giving is a invi- is a, it's a visible sign of an invisible truth, an invisible grace that we've come to experience in our hearts as we trust Christ. Or, as one man has put it, grace is the action, giving is the reaction. Grace is the action of God, giving is the reaction of his people who have experienced it. Show me a church that truly grasps God's grace, and I will show you a church that sacrificially gives to the needy and gives to the cause of the gospel, both inside their walls and outside of it. My favorite phrase, one of my favorite phrases in this text is, is verse 5. Look down at verse 5. And this, not as we expected, they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God gave themselves to the apostles' leading. Here, first does not refer to a period of time, but a priority of importance. Generosity comes first from devotion. It grows by discipline. Randy Alcorn has said, as sure as thunder follows lightning, giving follows grace. First point this morning. A church anchored in grace is anxious to give. A church that is saturated, anchored, and graced is anxious to give. Second point, a generous church doesn't just hit the target, it raises the standard. A generous church doesn't just hit the target, it raises, raises the standard. It's not about reaching measurables when we talk about giving, it's about going beyond the means necessary. Look down again at verse 3. Paul is describing the Macedonian believers, and this, this was a... a not an affluent group of people who were giving. The Macedonians gave out of their poverty, even though they were poor. It's very similar to the widow's might story that you might read in the Gospels. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, but beyond their means on their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Please, give us an opportunity that we can donate towards. Give us people that we can financially support as a reflection of the grace of God that's been working in our hearts. It's it's amazing when you think about this. Verse 5, and this, not as we expected, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. The generosity of the believers in Macedonia was not logical, it was paradoxical. Unlike the world where wealth is typically the sum total of a good economy and prosperity, For the Macedonian believers, wealth was the sum of severe affliction and poverty. Severe affliction plus poverty equaled wealth and a benefit of joy to go along with it for these believers. I want you to notice also there's two triads that are listed in verse 7. But as you excel in everything, here's the first one, faith, speech, and knowledge. It's the first triad there. The second triad is earnestness, earnestness, love, and grace. Both of those triads are preempted by this word all, and we should take them structured as sets of three, one alongside the other, as Paul wrote this. The first triad lists three things that are important personally. The second triad lists three things that are important corporately. It's an abundance of the first triad that will lead to an abundance in the second triad. In other words, if you have an abundance of faith, speech, and knowledge, that will lead to an abundance of earnestness, love, and grace 
for the body of Christ. I was uh, pretty close to a, a family that I knew here in, in Tulsa. I heard this great story about generosity and giving in their family. Uh, one, of the, one of the kids in the family had a birthday, and another one of the kids in the family wanted to do something really, really special for their birthday. And so they came up with this idea. They, they went through the store, took mom and dad with them to, to buy this little girl a birthday present uh, with their own money. They walked through Target, took some time to look through some options, had some ideas of what they wanted to do. And finally, this boy says to his father, says, I want to buy my daughter this gift. And it was on the shelf. It was $10. And the father said, okay, uh, I like your idea. I think this is going to be great. How much money do you have? And she opened up her purse, and she literally had $12 was all she had in her purse. And she gave every single one of those dollars or he gave every single one of those dollars for this gift for his sister for her birthday. It was a, it's amazing how generosity, the delight of generosity, can be experienced by a very small child in the young ages. And it's such a powerful illustration and manifestation of just the joy and the delight it is to give. She literally, he literally excelled in giving. Twice in the same verse, verse 7, you're going to read this verb, excel. But as you excel in everything, at the end of the verse, you excel in this act of grace also. Once in the middle, once at the end. The noun form of this word in Greek is actually up in verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy. Abundance is the noun form of the verb, excel, in the Greek text. The Greek word means to be outstanding. It means to be prominent in their giving. As Macedonian believers, this, this church, out of their poverty, and even though they were extremely poor, they were outstanding. They excelled in giving to the needs of other believers, believers that they didn't even know. You're going to see this word in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, probably a familiar verse to you. Be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, always excelling in the work of the Lord. Colossians 2.7, being rooted and built up in Christ, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The same way that believers should have an abundance of thanksgiving in their heart because of what Christ has done for them, in their identity, and saving them, that is the same way that we should be abounding in a joy to give to the work of Christ and excelling in this work. The first thing that Paul tells us to do here in this text is to excel in grace, excel in kindness. The second thing is to embody the cross. Excel in kindness. Number two is embody the cross. Look down at verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Um, any of you guys Lord of the Rings fans? Have you read, read the trilogy? It was, it was hard for me to get into the movies because the Fellowship of the Ring started so slow. I fell asleep to the Lord of the Rings about three times 
before I finally got into it. And then I realized that reading The Lord of the Rings was so much better than watching the movie. And there's, there's actually a scene in The Fellowship of the Ring. Remember the Council of Elrond? And they all come together at Rivendell. Gandalf reveals the Ring of Power has been found. The only way that they can deal with the Ring of Power is to go back to the place it was formed, back to Mount Doom, and destroy it once and for all. Destroy the power and the pride that existed in people's hearts when they held on to that specific ring. And, and so they were, gonna, they were trying to figure out who was going to take the ring to Mount Doom. Who was going to do this? And in the movie, as they discussed this, it just became this um, just cacophony of voices. Everybody started just talking at the same time. There was arguments. Nobody knew who was, everybody was fighting about who wanted to take it, who shouldn't take it, who did take it, all that other stuff was being talked about, and you just hear this small voice from Frodo. He says, I'll take the ring, though I do not know the way. When Tolkien wrote about that, it was completely different in the books. He doesn't talk about arguments or just this, uh, just voices all over the place and just the chaos that was heard on the movie screen. Instead, it was silence. I want to read this uh, section of, you for, of Lord of the Rings for you. Um, the great ring of power had been found, but it needed to be destroyed. And here's what Tolkien wrote about. He said, when they knew they had to destroy the ring, no one answered. The noon bell rang, and still no one spoke. Frodo glanced at all the faces, but they were not turned to him. All the council sat with downcast eyes, as if in deep thought. And a great dread fell upon him, Frodo, as if he was waiting for the pronouncement of some doom he had long foreseen and vainly hoped might, after all, never be spoken. An overwhelming longing to rest and remain at peace at Bilbo's side in Rivendale filled his heart. And at last, in the midst of the silence, as if someone was using his still small voice, he said, I will take the ring, though I do not know the way. Tolkien expressed the commitment as a voluntary free commitment. Frodo stepped up. Everybody else was thinking. Nobody was volunteering to do the hard work. This little hobbit comes along to do the job. Paul is moving cautiously as he writes these verses on giving. There's not uh, any real loud voices going on here. He's very careful in how he picks his punches. He picks his moments as he writes on giving. He knows it's a difficult ask for people to give in the Corinthian church, but he makes sure it's laced with freedom. He makes sure his heart comes across as a, as a pastor who's not compelling or forcing people to give, but motivating freedom in their own minds. Nobody's going to be able to read this text and come back at the Apostle Paul and say that he was ordering believers to give. Paul was a very sensitive pastor. He was a church planter. He does not want people to give out of compulsion because they're forced to, out of guilt or manipulation. He does not want Christians to give for the wrong reasons. And so, Paul will not demand or command giving. Instead, he will encourage and invite it. Participation in giving is purely voluntary. 
for a believer. You can choose to be a part of it, or you can choose not to be a part of it. But Paul takes freedom seriously in the body of Christ. And he beckons believers with an action that is going to be their free choice based on the Holy Spirit working in and through their hearts. Instead of commanding them, Paul will give a test. How do you know if your love for others and your love for God is genuine? How do you know if you're a sincere believer who truly loves God and truly loves other people, especially those in need? Genuine love is expressed at a cost. What are you willing to give toward it? What are you willing to do about it? The NET translates verse 8 this way. It says, I am not saying this as a command, but I am testing the genuine quality of your love. Your, your translation probably has something like, I want you to prove your love instead. The Greek word refers to a test and specifically focuses attention on the results or the outcome of that test. In other words, genuine love will re be revealed in what a person is willing to sacrifice based on grace and based on their love for God. Look down again at verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Though he was rich means this. Christ did not exploit his status for his own advantage. Instead, he relinquished his status in order to serve and love others out of obedience to Christ. Many people want to interpret this passage in terms of literal economics. They say that through Christ's material poverty, others were made materially rich. Really, we don't know the extent of Jesus' poverty in the first century. We know he probably wasn't a wealthy person. He probably didn't come from a wealthy family. We assume that he would be like any other Jewish family living in rural Israel under Roman rule. But this passage goes beyond economics monetarily into economics spiritually. The Macedonians knew it very well. Paul says Christ became poor. And that phrase refers to the miraculous emptying of Jesus Christ from his glory above to the heavens below. It's the grace of the incarnation that Paul is talking about the most in this context. Christ the Son renounced his full power when he came to the earth. He abandoned his glory in heaven with the Father, and he came down voluntarily choosing the poverty of humanity instead of the riches of eternal wealth. In a degrading and humiliating death on a cross, everything was taken from Christ. He had nothing left. Philippians 2 talks about this and, and fleshes it out even at a greater extent. It said that Christ emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men, being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself through obedience, even obedience to the point of death. The great Cappadocian father, Gregory of Nazianzus, put it this way, Christ was made poor that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. He took the form of a servant that we might regain liberty. He descended that we might be exalted. He was tempted that we might overcome. He was despised that we might, he might fill us with his glory. He died that we might be saved. There's a great divine reversal in the incarnation. And the way that you motivate grace giving in the, in the gospels 
in the New Testament for any local church is to simply talk about the incarnation of Jesus. He was willing to leave everything for the sake of us. We should be willing to give a portion back to him of what he has entrusted to us. Uh, just a couple points of application as we, as we summarize here. Number one, true giving requires giving of oneself, not just giving money. True giving in the New Testament requires giving of oneself, not just giving of money. Money is just one aspect of our lives that, we should, be, that should be lived holy in worship to God. Romans 12 is a, a great passage to think about in this respect. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Everything about you should be sacrificed to the Lord. He doesn't want a partial sacrifice. As believers, we, also want to, we all, always want to give the things that are easy and kind of crawl off the altar and keep the things that we like the most. Uh, Paul's about giving everything over to God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God. And that is simply what's reasonable. It's not a huge ask. This is what's reasonable for a believer. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you might test and approve what the will of God is, that which is good, well, pleasing, and perfect. The gospel is not about what we give to God. The gospel is about what God has given to us in sending Jesus, his son, to die for us on the cross. When he gave to us, he held nothing back in his grace and his love, letting his son experience the worst of the wrath of God, that we might experience the, ble the best of the blessings of a relationship with him. Giving of ourselves completely shouldn't lessen the need to give, it should increase the longing to give of our resources. Giving 10% a tithe is a good place to start for a New Testament believer. It is a bad place to end. Grace giving always will demand more responsibility for a believer, never less. Grace giving always is more powerful than legalism and giving of a certain number every single time. Grace is motivated because of what Christ has done for us. He didn't keep some. He gave all. And we should be willing to give everything of ourselves back to God. Number two, giving can be done out of extreme poverty or it can be done out of measureless riches. Interestingly, I really don't think the, that the Apostle Paul is asking just a ton of the Corinthian church here. I think he's simply asking for what's reasonable. He talks about giving as Christ gave. He talks about the Apostle Paul giving himself to the Lord and giving his whole life to the message and the ministry of the gospel. He even talks about the Macedonian believers who gave out of their, out of their poverty. These are extreme examples of giving. My take is that Paul is asking the believers in Corinth to simply give their fair share. Not to give the same amount that Christ gave, that the apostle Paul gave. Simply give what's reasonable. Give a portion of what's been given to you. Paul isn't establishing a requirement. He's extending a reminder. Christ did not give a fair share. 
His giving sacrificed everything for us. It was way out of proportion. The Macedonians' believers didn't give their fair share. It was well beyond anything that the Apostle Paul could have expected them to give. If your life has been transformed by God's grace, your willingness to sacrifice what you have will be shown by that. Giving is a a visible manifestation of the transformation that has happened in your heart because of grace. He simply asks us to do our part. He asks us to be responsible. He asks us to remember the greatest gift that was ever given in the history of the world. God the Father gave the gift of his Son to us, and he voluntarily came down, forsaking the glories above, taking on human form, being made in the likeness of men and born into humanity. He sacrificed himself for us. He asked us to be a a big part of what God is doing across the world to spread the gospel of grace with those we come in contact with to do so with our generosity, but to do so with our entire lives because we have been so transformed by the grace message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you to do so. Uh, Before we close in prayer, I just want to remind you that If you would like to know a little bit more about TBC and and where we are every single year in the summer, we stop midway through the year to talk about where we are as a church administratively and financially. I want to encourage you to come back here at 6 o'clock. We're going to have some ice cream afterwards in the gym uh, you can be a part of. And, uh, And just learn about just different ways what your resources are going to, where we are for our year as we've planned and administered what we believe are the resources that God has entrusted to us. One of our goals this year at TBC is to increase the, uh, the giving units in our church, our elders, myself, and the pastors, directors, and our staff. We don't know who gives what to this church. We never will know who gives what to this church. Um, but one thing we do keep a record of is how many giving units we have on a monthly basis. We'd like to see those giving units go up at TBC as we move forward as a, as a goal, as a spiritual goal for where we are as a body of Christ. We'd also see, like to see the disparagement between uh, more people giving even littler amounts. Uh, whatever you can give, whatever the Lord has put upon your heart to give, there's a, there's a huge disparagement right now between a lot of really big givers at TBC and a lot of people that don't give much at all. If you find yourself on the uh, former end of that sentence, Thank you. I want to encourage you in your giving. Uh, Keep going for the work of the body of Christ and TBC and the the ministry that we have. If you find yourself in the latter part of that, I want to encourage you to give. Be a part of what God's doing in the body right here in Tulsa. Um, If you'd like to know more about that, come and talk to us. We'd love to let you know. Let's pray together and we'll we'll close it up. Father in heaven, thank you again just for the opportunity to Uh, talk about a tough spiritual discipline, the the discipline of giving of our resources back to you and what you've entrusted to us. I pray that our lives will be totally caught up and surrendered to you in everything, whether that's financially, materially, serving in the body of Christ, engaging with our families and friends, reaching our neighbors in evangelism and missions work. Let everything that we do, God, be totally 
transformed because of the work of the gospel that has taken place in our heart and be given ultimately to you. We pray that our giving would simply be one small extension of the work that you have done in our hearts. I thank you for TBC. Uh, Thank you for the ministry that, that you have allowed to continue in this place. And I pray that you would continue to bless us in every way, not just financially, but also spiritually, relationally, to continue to provide the message of grace that this city, this culture so desperately needs. Help us to be Jesus, the hands and feet of Jesus to those around us to share the gospel when you give us opportunities and for the body of Christ to grow. We ask this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen.